I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with maybe for the last time in 2021, but who knows? Dr. Chris Cooper, our political analyst and political scientist at Western Carolina University. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So as 2021 ends and we go into 2022, just uh, just years on the calendar, but really the process of the election has been going on already for several months in North Carolina, and we'll go into the next year still with a lot of far more questions than answers. So take us right now through the timeline. The courts are now going to look at the claims of illegal gerrymandering in the congressional and general assembly districts that were drawn uh, late this year by the Republicans in the general assembly. So take us through the timeline of when the decision will come, the expected appeal, and then what that means for the primary date. Yeah, that's right. So um, first thing we need to, to get straight is that the primary date has moved back for all offices, right? So you might think, oh, maybe they'll just move it back for Congress or for the General Assembly. What the court said is our entire primary is being moved to May. Um, they also put forward a, a pretty aggressive timeline as far as uh, hearing this case so that the case has to be heard and complete by, uh, I believe it's January 11th. So we're going to hear that. There will almost certainly be an appeal regardless of what the court decides. Um, and then uh, it will move forward. We need to get the mail ballots out um, a specified number of days before the election. It is certainly possible that we can do that. I think it's going to be a lot of work for folks like the Buncombe County Board of Elections, but it is certainly possible to do, and it seems like that is the timeline we'll be on. So what this means for listeners is expect your primary in May. We're not sure what the uh, General Assembly and the congressional lines are going to look like, but you certainly have a sense of what many of the other offices will look like. Okay, so let's say the court does not agree with the illegal gerrymandering claims. Obviously, the primary would go ahead on May 17th with the lines that we have seen for the last month, correct? That is exactly right. Yes. So if if the court does not side with the plaintiffs in this case, we will move forward with the the maps that we've seen, the maps that have been distributed. This would be the 14th congressional district on the congressional side here locally. It would extend into Watauga County. It also critically makes some changes in Buncombe County and other parts of the region as well. Let's say they agree with the plaintiffs that this is a case of illegal gerrymandering. Now what? Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, at that point, we'll have to see. Um, I think there's a few different potential options, and we've seen all of them in North Carolina in the past. So one option is they just hand the ball back to the General Assembly and say, do better. Um, another option is that they put somebody else in charge. Sometimes this is somebody called a special master. Um, so that person would then come in and draw the line. Sometimes, like in Virginia, they have two special masters, kind of one from each side of the aisle. So we're not sure exactly who would do the drawing, but if the court does make that decision, there will be new maps. Given how long it might take to decide who draws the maps, obviously there's going to be an appeal even before we would get to that. Could the primary in May under this but again, if the plan was for to win this case, could the primary and maybe push back even further? You know, I think anything's possible on uh, on opening day and anything's possible in North Carolina gerrymandering litigation. And so certainly that could happen. I think it's unlikely. I, I think it is likely that we will move forward with this primary date. But again, anything could happen. And certainly another movement would not be unprecedented in North Carolina. It's important to note we've been down this road before. We have delayed primaries in the past. Sometimes we've done it for all offices. Sometimes we've done it for just some offices. So I understand that it can be frustrating to voters, but this is not unprecedented by any stretch. 
I guess then what happened, let's say the districts are redrawn in certain ways, and maybe some people have decided to run in a different district. We won't name names because I think everybody can figure out who we might be talking about. Let's say those districts are then drawn in a different way that may not be as favorable to them. Let's say someone who's already filed, can they unfile and then refile for something else? Take us through the whole filing process because that's also been thrown off here right now. It has. And so what we ended up with, because the court kind of moved, made a bunch of different decisions, frankly, within the span of just a few days, um, we did have one day of filing, right? So you actually can see that a number of people did file from um, people filing for Congress all the way down to uh, people filing for mayor of the city of Asheville, for example. Um, if they do nothing, they will still be registered, filed, however you want to look at it, for that office. So um, if they want to change it, though, they can. They are in a period where they can pull out of one office, register for another. So that could mean, hey, instead of running for the General Assembly, I want to move for Congress. It could mean I want to move from the 13th Congressional District to the 14th Congressional District. It could mean moving really from any office to another. So it's a uh, it's really wide open what it looks like from that point on. And again, new districts, let's say there are people that say they don't want to run, but maybe when the districts are redrawn, they go like, all right, well, maybe I will because I felt that maybe the district as it was drawn for me targeted me or was less favorable. Um, can people then who said they're not going to run decide, hey, I am going to run? Absolutely. Yes. It'll be open filing again. So we only had one day of filing. Filing um, runs for about two weeks usually. Uh, so really anything could happen. And many folks were planning to file later on in that period. I mean, there is some strategy behind when you decide to file. Some people want to get out early to kind of box out other people and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm running and I'm the, the front runner. Other people might want to wait to the end as sort of a sneak attack, if you will. And we've seen various politicians try to use the filing deadlines to their benefit. I mean, famously in the 11th Congressional District, Mark Meadows decided, announced his retirement um, in the small period after you were locked into some, one office, but before the end of the filing period. And that, of course, is what led to the rise of Linda Bennett, who won the first primary lost the second primary to somebody we didn't know a lot about, somebody named Madison Cawthorn, of course, who ended up representing us in the 11th Congressional District. So we'll now talk about Congressman Cawthorn, currently slated to run in the 13th as opposed to the 14th under the lines that were drawn, which are now being reviewed by the court. Um, you noted that by the time he had decided he wanted to run in the 13th, he actually still had more days left in office representing what is now the 11th um, than he had already served. Going back even further with Congressman Meadows, who had resigned in December 2019 to become President Trump's, Trump's chief of staff, there hadn't been a whole lot of representation for Western North Carolina in the House of Representatives, meaning someone physically in that office, Meadows wasn't there, or someone who's already looking at running in a different office right now with Madison Cawthorn. What are the detriments to the region not having that representation, active representation, in the House of Representatives in D.C.? I think it's a real problem for, for the region. I mean, so, yes, when Congressman Meadows decided he was going to become chief of staff, resign the position, um, Governor Cooper could have called for a special election but chose not to do so. So we were without any representation at all for over half of a year, really almost an entire year. Um, and with Congressman Cawthorn looking eastward towards the 13th Congressional District, it makes sense that his behavior is going to change. 
I think that really is a problem for those of us who live in the current 11th, about to be 14th congressional district. I mean, there's the constituency service request, which may still get heard, but there's also the you know, forethought that you would expect the proactive decision making that you would want a member of Congress to have, right? You elect somebody ideally who knows your district, who thinks about your district, who knows what the problems are that are going to arise. And ideally, you want somebody with a bit of a long time horizon who's going to be able to think about growth and development in the region. We, regardless of partisanship, have been robbed that now for um, a fair stretch of time while the country is changing rapidly. So I do think this is a real issue for those of us in the 11th slash 14th congressional district. I hope that whoever gets elected in the future to the 14th is somebody that's going to have a little longer time horizon. Right, particularly with things like an infrastructure bill and the desperately needed money that is needed in this region for things like broadband. Um, yeah, I, I just thinking about that, as you had mentioned it, just of the amount of time where there hasn't been a representative here, going back to when the prior congressman resigned and to now, um, it seems like there is somebody's missing for the region, um, even at this level, even though there's obviously all sorts of different levels in government, but there is something missing at not having someone at that level. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, I've, I've read and I think other people have too. you know, some folks who aren't big fans of, of Congressman Cawthorn who are writing him off and kind of saying, you know, good riddance to you. Um, but I'd remind those people he has more time to go than he has served. Right. There is no good riddance to to Madison Cawthorn, whether you love him or whether you don't like him. Um, he is still technically our representative. And so I, I think folks in the region need to continue to pay attention to him. I think it's also worth noting that for very different circumstances, Buncombe County's state legislative delegation is going to change a lot, right? So we've seen, we have five folks in the General Assembly on the House and the Senate side who represent all, represent parts of Buncombe County, essentially. Four of those five are not running for that office again. The one person who is likely to run again is, is Julie Mayfield, who is in her first term. So the loss of expertise that we're going to experience, that we are experiencing here in Western North Carolina is, is pretty extraordinary, whether it's at the congressional side where we have a freshman member who's already looking eastward, or whether it's on the General Assembly side where we are losing you know, decades of experience in one fell swoop. And to get to that, we'll get back to Buncombe County in a second. But to go to the whole General Assembly delegation from Western North Carolina, there's three or four other freshmen in addition to Julie Mayfield, Kevin Corbin's freshman in being in the Senate, um, uh, two freshman representatives also right now. So uh, in the state legislative level, having people that certainly have life experience, but maybe not legislative experiences, even if those in those branches, what do you lose at the legislative level? Because you and I both are very, very big supporters of talking about how much state government is the one that really affects people's day-to-day -day lives, not what happens in D.C. So having that lack of legislative experience, what does that mean for Western North Carolina? You know, I think it means everything that uh, that state government touches um, is potentially affected. And that is a whole lot of your life. And it is more of your life, I would argue, even than what happens at the federal level. Um, the amount of experience we're losing, again, regardless of, of what you think about any of these folks and their policies, but Susan Fisher and John Ager and Brian Turner and Chuck Edwards have all served a number of terms. Susan Fisher, I think six, you know, like 16 and a half years that she served in the General Assembly. To lose those folks 
means we're not going to have anybody who knows the details of the legislative process. We're going to elect somebody who I hope is good in all of these districts, regardless of partisanship, but they're not going to know the ins and outs of everything from, you know, education to regulation to, um, you know, all the different parts of our lives that state government touches. And what that means is the people with the knowledge it's going to be the lobbyists, right? Those are the people who hang around from term to term to term. Those are the people who know how to get a bill through. Those are the people who know their perceived needs. So when we see this kind of turnover, there's really one group that benefits, and that is the unelected lobbyists. But before we go full on doom and gloom, because we don't necessarily mean to do that here, but turnover, particularly at the state legislative level, turnover does happen uh, quite a bit. So this isn't, while it is a big blow to this area to see this kind of turnover, or isn't a b- big blow, depending on how you feel about things, but turnover is kind of part of the state legislative life, right? Absolutely. And there is an argument um, that turnover is a good thing. Um, so the term limits movement, right? In a lot of states, we have term limits. We say you can only serve X number of terms. Well, one thing we know about term limits, that's going to increase turnover, of course. And so some people would argue that this is a good thing for democracy, that we get new ideas in, that we get different kinds of people in, the evidence on term limits isn't great as far as the legislative process, but it does increase turnover. And if you think that's the best goal is to throw the bums out, get different bums, then it's a great day. Back to something something else I've heard you talk about a lot, but this really came through when we heard about the retirements of Susan Fisher, John Eager, and Brian Turner, uh, all of them hinting in some way that the longer sessions of the General Assembly now that have been taking place, and this year's took almost the entire year, um, has, t- has grown a lot on them. It's taken a lot out of them, particularly given how North Carolina legislators are paid. And you've talked about this a lot as how low legislators are paid in North Carolina and how that affects the people that are able to serve in the General Assembly. So take us through that. Uh, talk about the low pay and whom that ends up benefiting and whom that ends up hurting. Absolutely. So political scientists talk about state legislative professionalism, which is essentially the degree to which state legislatures look like Congress in terms of their resources. So in North Carolina, we pay our state legislators $13,951 a year. We do give them a small per diem. I think it's about $104. I don't know the last time you tried to get a hotel in Raleigh, but $104 isn't going to do very much for a hotel in Raleigh, not to mention your food. Um, And so that pay is really difficult, I think, for anyone, but particularly those of us in the West, those of us farther from the state capitol. If you live in Wake County and you represent Wake County, you may be able to go home for lunch and grab a turkey sandwich. You can sleep in your own bed. Um, turkey sandwiching can be good by the time you get back to Asheville or by the time you get back to Murphy. So it feels very different out here. Also, the session length has creep longer and longer and longer, and it is also unpredictable. So I think it would be one thing if we said, hey, we're going to make it longer. We said that on the front end and we say exactly how long you're going to be in Raleigh and how often, but we don't do that. It changes. It's unpredictable. So the kinds of people who can afford to run, one, they have to be people who can afford to make $13,951 a year, and which for the most part are retired people or people who already have a lot of money and at the very least people have flexible schedules but also the ability to go back and forth to Raleigh essentially at the drop of a hat. And and you're right, all three talked about it. I thought all three talked in particular about the increasing problem of session length and maintaining a life 
back here in Buncombe County or wherever they happen to be from. So this state legislative professionalism, I think, has always been a problem. It's getting worse. Our state is growing. Our state is becoming more diverse. And for good, bad, or indifferent, our General Assembly is growing in power. Our governor does not have a lot of power statutorily. Our General Assembly does. And so as we grow, as they're more important, we're not giving them the resources to complete their job. So it is... uh, you know, I think a critical thing that we should be looking at as a state, who do we want to incentivize running for office and what kinds of behaviors do we want to incentivize when they're there? And I would argue that we will be a little bit better off, perhaps a lot better off, if we would incentivize the right kinds of people to run and to put the time into the job. Well, I'm sure it's, uh, running on a platform of paying legislators more is a absolutely winning proposition yes. for anyone who would want to do it. <laughs> That's right. Um but I just want just to wrap up on that question. Pay is one thing. The length of the session is a different thing. And, you know, you studied legislatures. I've covered some legislatures. One, Maryland, 90 days. Virginia, 60 days. North Carolina's is different where it just can go on longer and longer, but it hasn't traditionally. How, um, I guess, out of the ordinary is it for a session like this year's to go almost the entire year in North Carolina? It, it's getting more and more common. But yeah, look, the, the General Assembly session is like a it's like an un, you know, a house guest who stays too long after dinner and you're kind of eyeballing them thinking, are we going to get up off this table eventually? And they just keep staying. Um, that's what our General Assembly session feels like to me. And it is increasing in length over time. Look, it ebbs and flows year to year. We have what is described as the short session and the long session. And the idea is a good one. In the long session, we pass the budget. In the short session, we don't pass the budget. Ideally, the long session should be longer than the short session. The problem is, a few years ago, the short session was actually longer than the long session. And regardless of what you call it, both sessions have increased in time, the amount of time we're spending in Raleigh, it's taken us longer and longer to do the work of government. And that does take a toll. Again, I would argue more so for those of us who live in the western part of the state or the far eastern part of the state as well. It's the last few questions to wrap up 2021, and we look forward to 2022. Here's something that came up in a press conference this week, actually about COVID-19 that Governor Rory Cooper was holding. He was asked about one, his, his you know, he's already... Uh, made his statements about Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, a Republican, feeling that his bigoted comments about the LGBTQ community uh, were something he should resign over. Obviously, Lieutenant Governor hasn't done that, but it was asked if Governor Cooper is at all concerned if he were to leave the state that the lieutenant governor would take over uh, the state. Now, there is a law regarding when the governor does leave, whomever the governor is, uh, does leave North Carolina, what happens, whether it's official travel or unofficial travel. Um, You look this up, uh, (laughs) mostly because I asked you to after I heard this during the press conference, but um, I think it is interesting because it's, I think it's going to be a bit of, uh, uh, there's going to be that tension for the next three years since you're seeing such disparate political positions between the governor and lieutenant governor. So again, what is the rule in the state constitution about what happens if the governor does leave the state of North Carolina? So the state constitution says during absence from the state or during mental or physical incapacity of the governor to perform the duties of his office, the lieutenant governor shall be acting governor. So acting governor has the power of governor. Absence from the state, again, is your key language here. This has actually come up a few times in in North Carolina history. So in 2017, Roy Cooper uh, left the state a few times. Turns out he didn't actually tell Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. So Dan Forrest would find out after the fact 
that he was, in fact, acting governor and didn't know it. Uh, when Roy Cooper and his administration was asked about it, they said, look, the Constitution says that he has that power. Constitution doesn't say we have to tell him when we're leaving. Um, it happened in 2011. Bev Perdue was our governor. This was a more serious um, example. She was in Kentucky visiting some family, and there were some tornadoes in the state, and some folks died. And the governor's office went hours without a response. And so I think that's why this is here, is to avoid that kind of thing. Um, there's some also funny examples from North Carolina history of, of the follow-up question, which is, what happens if both the governor and the lieutenant governor are gone? And the answer appears to be nobody really knows. So in 1961, Terry Sanford and the lieutenant governor went to Hawaii for some sort of a conference. Somebody asked him, who's in charge? Terry Sanford said, well, little Terry might be in charge, meaning his six-year-old son. In 1979, Hunt and his lieutenant governor went to China. Somebody says, well, what happens while you're gone? And he said, I don't know. Let's hope we make it back. So the Constitution isn't that clear on what happens if both the governor and the lieutenant governor are gone. It is clear, though, that if the governor is out of state, Mark Robinson becomes acting governor, whether he knows it or not. So what, as acting governor, what powers are there that the acting governor can exercise? Yeah, so our governor's not that powerful institutionally. And matter of fact, less powerful even than he was just a few years ago. But any power that our governor has, our lieutenant governor would have. So some of these emergency powers that have been so controversial as of late, um, I would imagine could be brought up by a Mark Robinson if he decided to do so. Um, I, you know, obviously, if there was a veto that came up, that would be unlikely to happen. Um, but I think the emergency power would give you know, some movement for a lieutenant governor to to do something one way or the other. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, again, sort of depends on your perspective. Um, but you can just imagine that for the time he's gone, Mark Robinson would have all the powers of Roy Cooper. And of course, ironically, I think Mark Robinson, everyone thinks Mark Robinson is soon going to run for governor and try to have those powers 24-7. So we'll wrap up uh, this year on the porch with you by going back to our first interview from uh, this year in 2021. You've been our far by, by far most frequent guest on the porch this year. And we talked uh, it was about the week after uh, the insurrection. We discussed um, that in that episode. We talked about the insurrection and kind of where we were. You used the term it was going to be a dark few weeks in American history. Um, given what was happened after that, the inauguration of President Joe Biden hadn't happened yet. Hadn't happened yet. I think a lot of people can, maybe if they want to go back and think about that time, will probably forget how much anxiety there was over the inauguration, what was going to happen during it. And of course, it went off without any incident. But again, you said you know a dark few weeks. Did those dark few weeks pass to you? Have they stretched out for the entire year? Are they looming into 2022? Um, how much have we... I guess tried to, well, I think we maybe we've moved on from the time. I think everybody can say that, but whether that's good or bad or whether we've moved on in a good or bad way is certainly up to interpretation. But where are we? Because we talk about democratic ideals and that's small d democratic ideals quite a bit. Where are we uh, at the end of 2021? Yeah, it's a good time to think about that, Matt. I I think on the one hand, some of the violence fears that we had after, again, not before, but after January 6th, I think weren't quite as bad. The, the worst was not realized there, right? So when I went back and listened to that conversation, um, you know, we talked a lot about potential violence in the capitals. And I'm not saying things were smooth, but that part probably wasn't quite as bad as we feared that it might have been. Obviously, the inauguration went off. 
without violence as well. So in some ways, some of it passed. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I think what we're learning about what led up to January 6th and what we've seen afterwards is, um, you know, not worse, but it is also fairly dark. I mean, we are seeing some real erosion of democratic ideals. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's not all at the federal level. Again, to return to one of our big themes, I think a lot of this ends up being at the state level. Um, we've seen some some real erosion of of faith in elections. We have seen, um, we've now learned that even before the last election happened, that Mark Meadows was considering ways to uh, challenge the votes in states like North Carolina. North Carolina was actually mentioned to try to figure out ways to get our General Assembly to weigh in on those ideas. So I think the answer is sort of turning us away from violence but it's turning us more towards awareness or what I hope is awareness of how we run elections and that the fundamental thing we need in elections is people who are willing to lose those elections and step off the stage, whether that person is a Democrat or Republican. And I think we all need to do our part to make sure that that key component continues in 2022. If you're the Democratic Party and you lose some seats, if you're the Republican Party and you lose some seats, we need to live to not fight another day. We need to live to govern another day. And um, I hope we're all paying attention to that.